This is Empowered Human Academy. Welcome home. Everything you'll ever need is already inside of you, even on the days when that feels hard to believe. Empowered Human Academy exists to remind you of who you are, to help you stay close to what's possible right here in every breath. I'm Abe. And I'm Isaac. We're both on our own journeys of growth, and what we've learned so far is that empowerment is as unique as you are. Once you've discovered just how expansive you are inherently, the world opens up around you. As we begin to feel better, life begins to feel better, and what it means to be alive comes alive in a whole new way. While your path is uniquely yours, we're in this together. Listening to each other's stories helps us imagine how to access our own power to keep going. We're here to create a life that feels like ours, one that calls us onward and upward because we're living as ourselves, fully and only. These conversations are part of that exploration and you're invited. So with hearts wide open, let's begin. Hello, Empowered Humans, and welcome back. We're truly thrilled that you're here. Today's guest is creative and science communicator, Maisha Alexander. I first met Maisha a few years ago through our work with the Clinton Foundation and have been consistently inspired by her power, perspective, and personhood. Currently based in New York, Maisha manages the Clinton Global Initiative University Commitment Mentor Program. She holds a bachelor's in culture and media from the New School and also a master's in anthropology. Throughout this conversation, we discuss psychological safety, building communities where you feel supported and believed in, the dynamic between individual empowerment and systemic structures that stand in the way, and the strength in vulnerability. We're so grateful for Maisa's generosity and transparency in sharing her experience as a Black woman navigating systemic racism in the workplace, an injustice that won't change unless we face it and talk about it head on. Maisha is truly incredible, and we're so honored she said yes to this conversation. So let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Empowered Human Academy. Today, we are so thrilled to be joined by the amazing, the magnificent, the brilliant Maisha Alexander. Maisha and I have known each other for a couple of years now through the Clinton Foundation, our work together there. And we are just so excited to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Maisha. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a little intimidated because I've heard some of the guests that you've had. And so I'm one, grateful for this invitation. And two, I know that I am following some incredible, you know, people. So I hope I have something worth saying. <laughs> you absolutely do. I'm I'm personally super excited that you're here. I got to know you by way of Abe, and I feel really lucky to have like run into your circles even a little bit. The way we begin these show these episodes is always with the question of like core identity, not the identity that we present necessarily, although that might be synced right up, but everyone thinks about themselves differently. So the question is, when you're coming home just to yourself and it's not a presentation, you're not thinking about anyone else, but just you sitting with you, what words of identity do you choose? Who are you? And when you're thinking about yourself for yourself, what words of identity feel right? Creative. That just like comes right from my heart. Yeah. Um, intelligence. I've always mm. been very proud of my brain mm. and black. It's yeah. just been ever present. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've ever had a choice, but from birth <laughs> that has been like the ever present thing. So. Mm. Oh, fantastic. How does it feel to like hold these words and say, hold them before you and say, these are the words that feel like me. What does that, what does that feel like to you when you feel, when you hold those three words together? 
I haven't always been proud of those words. Okay. And okay. so to say them and feel a lot of love for them and yeah. to feel like they are an important part, an incredible part of my identity. We've been sure. on a journey together, those words. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it feels really, really good to be in a space with those words and feel warmed by them instead mm-hmm. of embarrassed or shamed by them. Yeah, 100%. Is it a different feeling or is it the same feeling when you look at your history with those words versus how they all exist together with you right now? Or are those two relationships, you know, one and the same? I feel like they might be a little bit different. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I hope I'm. I hope I'm answering this question. It's a weird uh, question. Sat- Go for it. Yeah, it it is. So it's like a, in a really satisfactory way. But I feel like they're very different because they come at different points of my life. You know. Okay. I feel yeah. like most kids are creative, right? Yeah. Until we start getting told that a tree can't be purple or sure. you know mm-hmm. the sky can't be pink. That's mm-hmm. when our creativity starts to go away from ourselves. And mm-hmm. we have to, for a lot of people, they have to reintroduce it, you know, and okay. get back to it. So mm-hmm. for me, that was sort of like an ebb and flow type of thing. But I also come from a family of artists. Yeah. So it wasn't weird in my artists, like my little artist family. It was never mm-hmm. weird. But in school, when you get to be about eighth grade, most creative was synonymous with like the weirdest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't sure. it wasn't the superlative that anybody wanted, but I always got right. Yeah. And then when it comes to intelligent, again, I feel like this is the thing that sort of ebbs and flows. When I went to I went to school in Montessori. And Montessori is all about play and gathering information and the ways we connect with knowledge. Mm. And you learn by teaching others, right? So if I learned geography, I was like a three-year-old teaching another little kid about geography. And that was how we sort of learned and, you know, and so being smart was this incredibly beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember having grades or any of that until Mm. third grade when I switched out of Montessori and into a parochial school that was a lot more strict. And I got a B. This was the Mm. first B I ever had in my entire life. And I didn't even understand grades fully because I never really had them. (laughs) Wow, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And I remember trying to change the grade on my report card because I thought it meant that I was lazy and I was dumb and I had a complete breakdown because I finally, I couldn't do it because I like my art skills weren't great. So I had Mm -hmm. to show my mom my B and I remember crying about Mm -hmm. how dumb I was because Mm -hmm. I had this B and my mom was Mm -hmm. like, come on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She didn't get it. But yeah, so yeah, much yeah. of my school after that was centered around grades. And I don't really learn the same way that other kids do. I don't take yeah. in information mm. the same way as other people do. I later learned that I'm a little bit neurodivergent, meaning that like I have dyslexia oh, cool. and all sorts of other things that didn't display until, well, they, they were treated very differently in Montessori. Sure. It wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I didn't have those same associations, but being smart... I mean, it made me very, very shy. So being mm-hmm. smart was the way that I could kind of stand out. So, but mm-hmm. at the same time, being shy and smart sort of made me look like the Hermione of the group. Like I, <laughs> for, sure. for Harry Potter lovers, yeah, I was the no one who should have been the main character. Yeah, definitely right. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think Hermione is the most brilliant literary character that has ever been written. She's so smart. 
and I loved it, but everybody hates her for being an absolute mm. know-it-all. And I was like, yeah. I vibed with that. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So you have you have the purse with every or the bag with everything in it. <laughs> yes. Almost definitely, almost definitely, I will have that bag. And I've sort of learned to sort of lay off on it. But that's that was like my comfort zone. I could I could contribute, but that sure. wasn't always welcome, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So, so that that relationship is also coming up. I've got so many. I have so many questions too. Your turn now. So what's what has been like your relationship in that ebb and flow of being intelligent and and kind of and shy at the same time and not internally or externally wanting to show up as the Hermione, if you will, or what what what's that internal process been like for you, and how does it show up today, even in your professional world? Yeah, so that's been a rough process, mainly because I learned that I wasn't shy. Mm. necessarily, I was not in spaces where I felt safe. And Uh, those are two different things. And so being able to, first of all, be able to acknowledge that those are different. And that Mm. took a bit of knowledge to get. I had to go through some things. I had to meet lots of different people. There had to be a space for these conversations to take place. And a lot of them have taken place online and on the Mm. internet where I've developed a really wonderful community of internet strangers that are now internet friends. I'm a, I'm a big like online, you know, online daters. I'm not an online dater. I was an online friender. And I, mm. I, but it's been really powerful for me to have places where I didn't have to hide so much. Yeah. And yeah. I think that was the thing about being shy was I always felt forced to do something mm. that really was not me or felt inauthentic Mm. And I was surrounded by big personalities, which mm-hmm. made it worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I have a mother that was, is, uh, she was born in the 1940s in the South. And she's mm-hmm. a Christian lady and education and, and for Black p- people, especially in the South, it was very, very important. And so she speaks a very particular way and she's very mm-hmm. genteel and sort of perfect and refined, right? Mm-hmm. And you meet me and I'm the only one from Brooklyn. Like I was from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn in the eighties and nineties under Rudy mm. Giuliani. That's a different thing, right? Okay. Like <laughs> yeah, totally. that, that was, that was a different thing. Crack was King when I was growing up. So I had edges that my yeah. other brothers and sisters ha- didn't have. I had mm-hmm. experiences that they didn't have. I remember when I switched to that third grade school, we yeah. didn't have like a recess, a place to play, right? Across the street, there was the projects. And we would play in their playground, but because it belonged to the New York City Housing Authority, Mm -hmm. we would get speeches about how not to pick up hypodermic needles, how not to Mm. pick up crack vials, you know, and this was my education at like eight or nine years old. So I have experiences that they never had. And so when they, people would meet my mom and then they'd meet me who was a little bit rough, who was Mm -hmm. a little bit. I don't know, ostentatious in, a, in the way that I dressed. It was very, yeah. very different. They were kind of, always kind of disappointed, right? And hmm. then my father was a minister. He was a public figure in New York City. They moved to Brooklyn because it was part of a revitalization project by the Lutheran Church. And that's okay. why we were in the hood where we were. Yeah. And when he died, he had like all of the fanfare and everything that I would, I was not okay with at all. Yeah. But again, he was a, a he was a very sort of stately, well-spoken, six foot two, big, mm-hmm. strong dude who mm. loved to speak and loved yeah. to be heard. And yeah. I was just like, mm, later for that, right? 
that's where you got your amazing <laughs> speaking skills from. Just yes. saying. Both both my parents are speakers. So elocution, elocution mm-hmm. was like a thing for them. Yeah. Debutantes were a thing for them. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so given the contrasts, like in your experience and maybe in the way that people perceived like you with your parents or or you with your family, how or or whatever contrasts you feel there, what was it that brought you to a place like right now where you can embrace these things that you are? Like what's if we can sum up the arc between then and now as far as like I once thought I was shy. Now I realize it was a safety thing. Now I know how to present myself more as myself. What brought you there? And also, why did you work on it? It was really a series of actually really traumatic and horrible events. And I mean, this is a really great question because I was thinking about when you all asked me to be on the podcast, I was thinking yeah. about the word empowerment. Mm-hmm. And so often, particularly now, not so much when way back in the day when empowerment theory sort of first comes on the scene as mm-hmm. part of civil rights and all of that, it has a completely different meaning, right? Okay. But yeah. now when people think of empowerment, I think it sort of gets removed from the social context. Sure. And I think we often forget to add in that we are sometimes not necessarily disempowered by how we feel about ourselves, but the structures totally. that are around us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I needed to remove some of those structures, which mm-hmm. was really difficult for me because there were a lot of expectations about who I would be, about what I would be, the mm-hmm. investment that people put into me. And mm-hmm. so I would hear all the time, I went to private school, so I was the only one in my family to be able to do that because I was the youngest. I would hear all the time, we've paid so much money for your education. You have to go to school. You have to be a doctor. You have to do this and you have to do that. And I had five older brothers and sisters that are considerably older than me. My mom had me in her 40s, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about like, I have a brother that's old enough to be my dad. So there, there are significant generational gaps in addition to cultural gaps there from the Southwest and me being from Brooklyn that I had to remove myself from. And it was really mm. painful because mm. I felt like no one liked me in my family. Okay. Yeah. I didn't just feel like the black sheep. I just felt like no one liked me. Mm. And in order, eventually, it wasn't so much a decision as like a conscious decision as me just saying, I'm going to have to go away for a while because I feel like I'm unwanted here. Yeah. And so in that process, I actually ended up moving to Los Angeles for a little while. This was like my first year of college and I was Mm -hmm. really hopeful about Los Angeles, but it was not what I thought it would be. But in that time period of sort of trying to figure out my way. LA is a very tough place to live. So when people mm-hmm. are like, New York's tough, and I'm like, no, LA mm-hmm. is tough. In that process, I would meet all kinds of people. And eventually they would just walk up to me and start telling me their stories. Wow. And I was like, mm-hmm. there has to be a reason why. Like, you don't know me. I would be on the bus and people would reveal themselves to me in these incredible, like, I still, I remember everybody's story and I started to write them down. Unfortunately, I lost all the papers because Mm. I thought maybe one day I would need to do something with it, but maybe it was just like, I needed to hear them. Like I would hear about abuse. I met women that had been trafficked by their boyfriends and forced on drugs. I met 15 and 16 year olds that were in and out of rehab already. Mm. And they would just walk up to me and start telling me these things. 
And I think through that process of in very sadly meeting these individuals, but also realizing that I found myself in a space where I was with them. Yeah. It started to break down some of the ideas of what I was taught a good person was. Oh, fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. Like I was always told like, never want to be around drug addicts because drug drug addicts are horrible people. You never want to mm. be around sexually active mm-hmm. people. You never want to be around people with mm. HIV and AIDS. And yeah. suddenly that's exactly who I was around. Yeah. And I, I was just like, oh, they're very human individuals and they're very mm-hmm. beautiful. And they have, you know what I mean? It was yeah. a matter of me. I had to go through it, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was not so much about them. It was more about like, I don't want to say like my shit, whatever you're dealing with is not that bad. That wasn't at all what it was. It was about exploring a world where I didn't have these outside factors that were yelling at me what I was supposed to be and meeting other people that just were what they were. And I was like, I can still have a life here, right? Like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. This is not what I thought it was. This is not failure that I'm seeing. It's just an experience. Mm -hmm. It's okay. And I needed to, I, I probably disappeared roughly about two to three years during this process. Wow. And you were, cause you were outside of the box that people put you in, which can be really, really debilitating and also like suffocating in a lot of ways. And also in my experience going through something like that, like it really kind of warps your perspective of like the world in not a good way. You know what I'm saying? So that's really cool and interesting and also probably hard that you had to go through that too. Cause it was, was it, did it feel like an awakening or like a, a shaking of your core? Like who are, who am I kind of thing? No, it was probably years before I truly dealt with it. And I Got mean, it. like the whole experience was actually pretty traumatic for me. Like I was sleeping on friends' couches. So mm-hmm. I was like essentially homeless mm-hmm. for a period of time. And like I said, just felt totally, totally worthless while all of this is going on. And and still, I have a horrible relationship with LA. Like, I can't even think about going to Los Angeles without mm-hmm. feeling viscerally about being there at any given time. I have brother and sister out there. Mm-hmm. I have family and I haven't uh, hadn't seen in like 10 years because I refused yeah. to go to out there to see them. Huh. So I was okay. like, you either you come here or, <laughs> you know, I sure. don't see you. Making sure I understand. So like LA, like the place where you started to see that the walls are not what we thought they were, that's still a place, like it served its purpose for you, but you're just done for the moment. It's not even that I'm I'm just done for a moment. It's just, it puts me back in that space of vulnerability. When I I think about what it was there, what, you know, the types of, people are cruel. (laughs) People are just cruel. Okay. So this, okay. So I want to connect this to, to what you said earlier about safety versus shy, and maybe not even in contrast with shy, but I want to talk about safety and how we create it or choose it for ourselves, or, or, or I guess just one's relationship with it. And I know that everyone has a very like specific detailed relationship with their own safety, what makes them feel safe, all that jazz. And bearing in mind, like the several definitions of empowerment that we've, that you've got on the table, what does safety have to do with living in confidence as one's self? I almost want to apologize for the question because I feel like the answer is screamingly important, but how would you describe the significance of safety and of constructing or making choices to ensure your own? Like, how does all of that, what does all of that mean to you? So safety is like a really interesting thing, right? There's physical safety, there's emotional safety, there's psychological safety. Have you ever been in a blanket, the coziest 
blanket in the world Mm -hmm. and you wrap it around you and you just sort of fall away in that moment and you could Mm -hmm. be anywhere in the world, but it's just you and that comfy blanket, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Lots of people, including me, have not always had that comfy blanket. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's been because of other people. Maybe it's been because of choices that we could or couldn't make. Yeah. But the blanket was covered in barbed wire, right? And so even when I try to find safety within myself, I couldn't do it because there were too many scars and too much bleeding still happening and all of that. And I would tell you a really weird story that I I had forgotten about until I started to rethink the ideas of what safety was like a few years ago. Mm. So I think Abe mentioned this to me in one of our conversations, Pastor Mike from Agape Church of Love. Michael Beckwith. Michael Beckwith, right. So when I was in high school, I briefly, just for a year, was in California while my mom moved to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I lived out there and I would go see my sister and she was, I don't know if she was an active member of that church, but she would sometimes go. And they Mm -hmm. had a teenage church you know, kind of like kids church or whatever, but it was teenagers rather than like little Sunday school. And we had an assignment to build something with clay. And I remember building a compass and she was just like, well, why'd you build this compass? And I was like, sometimes I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I feel. Mm. It was a very Mm. weird moment of vulnerability because I was not a vulnerable kid. I didn't like talking, but it Mm -hmm. was like, I don't know. There was something in this space that I felt like I could say this out loud. And the facilitator points the compass to me and was like, this is home. Right. And I was just like, whatever, more California nonsense. (laughs) And I did, I did not think about it. Right. Until years and years later, when I had to have a reckoning with sort of the people that were put into my life that made me feel a certain way about myself. When I had Mm. to think about giving myself some grace because the things that I was hearing, I was a kid, right? Mm. And I was hearing mm. these things from adults and they were cruel. And I was mm. just like, Maisha, you didn't have the language to be able to stand up for yourself or advocate for yourself or mm. be empowered and be mm-hmm, empowered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That wasn't an option, sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when I started to think about these ideas of grace and, and forgiving myself for maybe times when I wasn't great or I wasn't even great to other people and you know all of that, I remembered that moment at the Church of Love when she was like, this is home, like this is your safe space. And I was like, I'm going to have to do some healing without maybe getting the I'm sorry's and all of that from the people around me. It has to come from here. And this, Mm -hmm. I think that was like, for me, the start of understanding how safety or the idea of safety would Mm. play long-term into who I thought I was or who I even thought I could be as a confident person. And it's just been like a journey from there. Wow. And every experience wow. is an opportunity to try something new or to test mm. my, test my confidence yeah. um, in new and different ways. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. All of that, all <laughs> of that is, I'm super curious about the, th- thank you for sharing all of this, by the way. Like I, all, all of these things run really deeply, it sounds like, and I'm grateful that you're sharing these stories with us. I feel like we're at a bonfire or like a, a cocktail bar hanging out. I love by it. By the way, this is not something that I could have done two years ago, by the way. Cool. Ooh. Cool. 
Proud of you. Yeah. That's what's, amazing. Okay. Uh, well, what were we going to okay. say, Isaac? I, I want to I ask about what's happened in those two years. But first, I, I'm really curious about all of this. But you said a specific piece. I didn't have the, <laughs> the language yet for my own empowerment. I'm, I'm paraphrasing poorly. Given that so many of us learn the language of disempowerment or, or, or self-critique, given that we are given those words frequently before words of like our value and self-worth and all of that jazz. And given that we walk around in the society where like the leading edge of language is not always positive, how do we get ahead of, of that, I suppose, or to ask the question slightly differently, if as kids we're first handed language that disempowers us and as adults, we have access to that sort of thing also how do we get ahead of it? Like if we're if we're constantly presented with messages of the opposite of that, how do we get ahead of it and make sure that we like are, are claiming our own territory as we move on in an evolving world? Yeah. So I'm. This might sound really weird, but I actually it. think we have it when we're younger. Okay. I think that we sort. It's sort of. It's the. I, to me, I think it's the more intuitive thing. Okay. And anybody that studies human nature, I'm an anthropologist, so I probably shouldn't make those grand claims like that. But I do think that it's it's more of an intuitive thing that we have, and then the world gets rid of it for us. Okay. And this is one of the reasons why. So I listened to this podcast faithfully. It's called Let's Not Meet. I don't know if any of you, if you've ever listened to mm-hmm. it, but it's a true crime podcast. Okay. Basically, people write these stories about these incredible sometimes they're like i don't know they're real things that have happened to them right yeah and almost every story where there is a kid that is telling their story about a stranger that they met that they didn't feel comfortable with Mm -hmm. somebody that came to the house that made them feel uneasy you know all of these things they always say my parents didn't listen to me Hmm. or my parents didn't believe me Yeah. So we start to structure. I feel like we start to structure our thoughts and our language around what people won't believe Mm. versus the truths that we feel inside of ourselves. We start trying to make people more comfortable because we're kids. We we want to be loved, right? Mm -hmm. And so from a very early age, we start trying to make our parents comfortable because they don't want to deal with our weird, creepy uncle. They don't want to deal with the stranger down the street that might be like, I don't know, doing some skinning some weird animals in their, I don't know, house or something. (laughs) And I get it because I'm an adult now. I don't want to deal with it. Right. But in almost every case, that is what I hear is that they didn't listen to me. And when I mm. think back to myself as a kid and that psychological safety thing, I think yeah. about all the times when I would try and speak up and people were like, Maisha, you're just making that up. That never huh. really happened. Even now, I'll tell stories to my mom. And I used to tell her all the time. I'd be like, yeah, my brothers and sisters, they played circus with me and they threw me into a wall and I ran into a wall. And, she, and I was like five. And she was like, that would never happen. Maisha, your brothers and sisters know better. And I'd say Mm. it all the time. And it Mm. wasn't until 10 years ago, we were sitting around the table and I told the story again. And my older brother happened to be there. And he said, oh yeah, that definitely happened. Hmm. But for how many, 20, 30 years, Mm. I wasn't believed because it was just so unfathomable. But why would I have made that up? And I understand that like kids also don't have the same maybe threshold for understanding what's like something that's really big. You know what I mean? Like when you're a kid, 
you might get a haircut and you fall out because it's not what you like. Or somebody mm-hmm. says, no, you can't wear the blue socks. You have to be- wear the green socks and your mm-hmm. entire world falls apart. And that's exactly yeah. what they look like. But it sure. doesn't mean that it doesn't feel that way to them. And we yeah. don't want to deal with that fallout. So we invalidate it instead. And yeah. I actually think that that's where that starts. When we have communities that sort of validate these feelings and, and we can say, instead of like, please, nobody's listening to that, saying mm-hmm. like, you know, I understand that you want to wear the green socks. And I know it feels like you have to wear these green mm-hmm. socks today, but they're really dirty and we can't do this. And so, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Or just, ha- yeah. but it's but it's tiring to talk through those types of things. Totally. And, and I, I really do think that that's when we lose that language because we worry about mm. not being believed. And yeah. I would wager to say that other might agree with me only mm-hmm. because if you remember Sesame street, which I do, I'm a huge Sesame street fan. Cheers. Um, remember Snuffleupagus was big bird's imaginary friend. <gasps> he was imaginary. <gasps> he was imaginary. Years later, I think in the 90s, they decided not to make him imaginary because they wanted kids to know they should be believed. Wow. So this isn't like off the top of my head. This is like a really important thing. Like if you say something is there or whatever, even if it might feel imaginary to the kid, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's real. It's worth investigating. But I feel like so often... Like I would have these feelings when I was a teenager and I'd feel like the world was ending or whatever. And people would mm-hmm. say, oh, they would pass it off. Oh, that's just teenage angst. Yeah. And I did. I, so I just stopped opening Communi- up to people. Yep. I didn't totally. want to be angsty. I didn't want to be feel that way for other totally. people. So as, so as, as adults where we have like, hopefully, right. A little bit more latitude in the spaces that we occupy and the people that we speak to and the words that we choose maybe, is it more about like building on a foundation that I will be believed or is it more about moving to communities who will believe us or is it something else or a combination bringing all of that conceptualization into here, right? Like I'm in my thirties anyway, like an adulthood here, like what does one do with all of that? I'm going to say it's a little bit of both. Okay. And for me, it was about building a new community. Okay. And being really particular about the types of people that I let inside of my Mm -hmm. circle. And Mm -hmm. again, I had to learn it. I had to meet a few bad people in order to know what the goods felt like. But, Mm -hmm. but I didn't all like, I, that's not necessarily what has to happen. It's just that the few bad people were also the people that were raising me or that were surrounded, Mm. that were the people chosen for me like mm, teachers and things like that. Sure. So you start to think, and, and maybe this isn't a lot of people, but for me, I started to think this is how I deserved to be treated. Mm-hmm. I had to earn a space for happiness. I had to okay. earn a space to feel proud of myself, those mm-hmm. types of things. Mm-hmm. And then when I changed or so almost organically, like when you start to go through the process, certain people just don't want to hang out with you anymore because you're not that person. That's real. So, you know, <laughs> Super real. <laughs> so I think like almost organically, my community started to change towards people that were having these conversations as well, felt very comfortable with vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I was not comfortable hugging people until like two or three years ago. And yeah. then mm-hmm. like people started to like say, it's okay. Like touch can be nice. Um, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I think that that's, I think 
for me anyway, I think part of it is like cultivating the communities around us of Mm -hmm. people that are asking these questions that are okay with these questions. But I also feel like that can have like a I don't know, it can be a bit of a chain reaction because it encourages other people who may not feel like that to Mm -hmm. maybe explore different ways of talking or being with each other. And some people might find it to be really weak or Mm -hmm. that's what I was taught. It was like strong Mm. people don't communicate their feelings and that sort of thing. And so I had to get over that and understand the strength of that. But nobody had ever talked to me about the strength of vulnerability or Mm. the strength of speaking what I, what felt right to me or even being authentic or anything. Mm. That wasn't conversations that I heard. So when I started to hear them, they felt right to me, but I was also in the right place, mind, body, and spirit to hear it and take it in. Hey everyone, on that note of surrounding yourself with a community that's aligned with where you're headed, we'd like to invite you to join us for Lightword Together. Lightword Together is a bi-monthly group coaching experience that gathers on the 15th and last day of each month. A mixture of structure and soul, these sessions are designed to support you in your growth and foster a community of like-minded humans cheering each other on along the way. During these 75-minute video sessions, we discuss the building blocks of an empowered life. For $75 per month, you'll gain access to these group sessions as well as our community Slack channel, video library of past sessions, and in-depth content summaries. We're currently opening up two spots per session, completely free of charge, so you can get a feel for the magic in real time, and we'd love for you to join us. For more information, find us on Instagram at Lopez, or head over to lightword.com together. Now, back to the conversation. You've made reference a couple of times now to like a time frame that's about two or three years leading up to the present in whatever detail like you're comfortable with what's what's happened like what's the transition been there? Yeah, so I quit a job. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. So I quit a job. <laughs> okay, so I I was in college and in undergrad I worked for a retail company which was brilliant. I loved that job. It allowed me to be creative. I met sort of all sorts of people, but it's still retail, right? And then right out of college, like right when I finished and I knew I was going to go to graduate school, I transitioned into my first adult job, you know? So it was going to be in an office and it was a startup and all of that stuff. And I thought this is really exciting. It was very, very small. And I stayed there or I went there because I had remote possibilities to like work from home. It was very flexible in terms of that. It gave me a lot of vacation time, which was important because again, I knew I was going to go to grad school and I did not have the money to Mm. not work. So things that were important to me were like flexibility, a decent salary living in New York city. I needed to be able to make my $800 a month. That sounds crazy. Like $800 a month. Yeah. Was, was so much money to me then. But now I'm just totally, like, totally. If, if you were to tell me $800 a month for an apartment, I'd be like, sold. <laughs> <laughs> right? Totally, totally. Deal. <laughs> but I needed to be able to make my $800 a month for my rent. I need mm-hmm. to be able to feed myself. And I also needed to be have insurance. Mm-hmm. That was also part of the deal of going to school is that you need okay. to have insurance. And so I wanted good insurance because I also had a back injury during that time. Okay. And I do have an autoimmune condition that has mm-hmm. to be monitored. So good okay. insurance versus the school's insurance. Those were my things. So Got I it. happily worked 40 hours a week and then went to school at night part time. During this time period, I 
thought very naively that I would have managers that would see my good work ethic and they would promote me and I would get, and I was also coming from the previous place where I worked. We automatically got raises every year, like at least cost of living. And then it was cost of living adjustment. And then after that, you got based on your performance. And yeah. I was like, fair, right? Yeah, so yeah. That's what I was used to. And there I am in this, this new company. No one's advocating for me. Like I wasn't getting raises. I didn't know how to ask for them. And yeah. Yeah. I got asked the most ridiculous things. I was facing biases, microaggressions, racism mm-hmm. constantly. But in my head, I was like, it's all worth it because I'm going to school, I'm getting my degree, I'm doing Mm -hmm. what I want to do. I can also take time off of school and do internships, which is exactly Mm -hmm. what I did. So I had this other goal that wasn't based at that company, Mm -hmm. but it didn't matter. I was still performing my job to the best of my ability 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that that alone should have been enough for me to be able to have the things that are really just fair and basic. Mm-hmm. And I was basically feel like I was taken advantage of by this company for eight hmm. years. And I would wow. watch all of my other coworkers around me in the same group. They would be promoted. I would ask to do something. There was always an excuse mm-hmm. why I couldn't get done. I mm-hmm. had eight managers in the same department while over those eight years. And the only time I ever had somebody advocate for me, they started to hire more black people. I'm be honest. Okay. They started to hire more black people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there yeah. was a black woman in a completely different department who was just very aware how driven I was, how academic I was. It wasn't a secret. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew. And I had also like gotten two degrees while I was working at that place yeah. and still no raise, no nothing. And she said, would you be interested in learning this thing? I'm happy to teach you. First yeah. person in eight years to ask yeah. me, how mm-hmm. I wanted to be developed to give me an mm-hmm. opportunity to try something else. Yeah. Wow. And um, I didn't realize how taxing emotionally that was. Mm-hmm. I just kept as for me, I was like, well, as long as I'm working towards my goal, why do I care about these other people? But the truth is the other people did affect me yeah. mentally and emotionally in ways that I didn't understand. And also not having anybody to advocate for me. I didn't yeah. know that I wasn't being treated fairly. Yeah. So what happened was I ended up taking a month off to go and do an internship in Cyprus. And this was like in 2018. And I knew I wanted to go do an internship in Cyprus. Actually, I didn't even know I wanted to go to Cyprus. I knew I wanted to do an internship. I wanted to be in the field school. I'm a forensic Mm -hmm. anthropologist. And so being in in the field is is like everything for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I figured out that I wanted this opportunity, but I wasn't making enough money after eight years at this company to to have a thousand extra dollars, this is ridiculous, right? I got another job like in December, the universe opened it up. So I must have been ready for it. Mm-hmm. I, got, I was like, I'm going to take this part-time job. The part-time job actually paid me more than the full-time job, but yeah. it was something completely different. It was a six month contract and it was like 15 hours a week. And it, during those six months, I learned more in six months than I had at that other company in eight years because wow. I had to be developed. I was put in a place of management and power. Yeah. And I saw something come out of me that I had not had an opportunity to mm. develop. So when I earned the money finally, and I go to field school and I'm gone away from this company and also like everything in New York, it's just yeah, me yeah. doing my thing for a month. 
we're getting close to the end of the month. And I was like, I can't go back to that life. Mm-hmm. And I got back in June and two weeks later, this job opportunity comes up and I'm like, it's at the Clinton foundation. And I'm like, I'm going to apply. And mm-hmm. I got the job. I was gone within the month of saying like, that was it. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And in those, like in the two and a half years that I've been at the Clinton foundation, I have definitely, I've actually reached all my professional goals there. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's Cheers. true. Yeah, but it's yeah. true. Like I am so proud of myself of what I was yeah. able to accomplish. But that was that, that time period is I started mm-hmm. to be around that community. I started mm-hmm. to yeah. be around Abe and yeah. you. And it, so of course that changed the way I felt about myself and how mm-hmm. I presented myself to the world became very, very different. And I also have to give like props to my husband, my husband and my partner for helping me open up quite a bit because he was patient in ways. I don't think humans are typically Mm. patient. Hmm. Well, and I, I love like you are essentially paying it forward because your job is to spotlight and highlight part of your job. You have so many hats at the Clinton foundation, but part of your job is to highlight students doing incredible work and what amazing that you are in that position now when like for so long you didn't get that opportunity. So I just, I think that's really admirable and freaking awesome. The themes of like paying it forward, the themes of getting through, like you got, you, you got through LA, you got through that eight, those eight years and like, you're still, and you're still like here and, and you're opening up more and more over the last couple of years, you said, and like, it's, you're an incredible storyteller. You're so mm-hmm. smart. I mean, we haven't even touched on all the amazing stories. I mean, we've listened last summer, we listened to an anthropology seminar that you put on for like 45 minutes or something. I mean, you just have so much in you. And this is why I wanted to get you in the, on the podcast is because like you have a universe full of knowledge and and stories and creativity in you. Um, and we are literally 40 minutes, 41 minutes in, and we are literally so only, to only touching the surface and we have to get done <laughs> relatively soon here, but I'm just kind of like blown away right now. Completely. <laughs> um, so we mentioned the anthropology things, I think a couple of times. I do want to talk about that a bit because I mean, without, I don't, I don't want, I don't want, I want all the words about the subject to come from you. So maybe I'll just, hand the mic over to you for this part. What is, <laughs> what is so a couple of times you mentioned cultural anthropology. I, I think I'm getting the term right. Let me know if I'm not. What is that? Why is it important to you? What role does that play in your life? Yeah. And what role do you play in that field? So anthropology is a study of humans. And it's typically separated into four major fields, cultural anthropology being our culture, linguistics, our language, or the ways in which we communicate. Archaeology is material culture. And then biological anthropology is basically, it's like primates, our bodies, our biology, where we come from, that sort of thing. So I have several degrees in anthropology. My background uh, before I got my master's was actually in cultural anthropology. In high school, I took film. studies because I actually finished high school early. So I went to film school and I thought that I would be a music video director and a documentarian because I liked storytelling. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) So uh, that's what I basically went to school for was cultural and media and all of that. But then uh, I 
ended up doing an internship at, or it was like a volunteership actually at the mm. Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. It's a hands-on museum. And at that time I was trying to transition into grad school. I didn't know what I was going to do there. And I was in a four-field program, which means you study a little bit of everything and then decide which track to go. While I was in the Franklin Institute, I was hired to be a museum explainer for a project called the German Mummy Project, which was like the Museum of the World exhibition. And this was my introduction to the biological side of anthropology. And I fell in love with the technology. And there I was like literally going to work with, you know, I had human remains that were 7,000 years old. And I'm like, this is my coworker, you know, (laughs) and it was just such, it was such a beautiful way to interact with humans. And at that time I was again, really shy. And so cultural anthropology had been a struggle for me, not feeling comfortable talking to people, but and and. I, sorry to interrupt. And I remember you telling me that there aren't a lot of Black women in the field. There aren't. There are actually very, very few, particularly in the United States, a little more overseas. Okay. But um, I, ha- I didn't know that at the time. I mean, when you, when, you, when you are a Black woman of a certain type of education and go to private school, you're almost always the black, only Black person in the room. Mm. So I didn't know to ask. I just thought, you know, this is life, which is sad, mm-hmm. but that was totally. what I grew up with. So when I did, so that's when I switched to biological anthropology. I was more into the technical side at first. So I studied, uh, I think my first paper was on cranial facial reconstruction in AutoCAD. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. I know, it's so random. Uh, but then I wanted to do more of it. And that's when I got the uh, internship at the Smithsonian. They had a written and bone exhibition, which was about the excavation of the Jamestown colony. And okay. it was a forensic anthropology exhibition. And during that time, they, at the end of the exhibition, they had a forensic anthropology lab where you could go through and solve a case with one of the lab people, lab managers, me. And uh, uh, we would solve this case. We would put together a biological profile and just walk through the process. And that's where I sort of cut my teeth when it comes to public engagement and storytelling and teaching people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say teaching people because I actually learned to teach people a lot longer ago. I mean, but yeah, that's where it really started to come to life for me. And so I've been working in the field of mostly forensic anthropology and historical archaeological context. And also I started my own bone lab um, as part of my public engagement thing, which is the Rockstar Anthropology. And my bone lab though works with kids primarily in the New York area, primarily in black and brown schools. Basically kids like me, like I was, I want to introduce them to the world of forensic anthropology and archaeology. Mm. It's an interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. lab. It's hands-on. So I do Mm -hmm. have I have bone casts. I don't have actual bones. But for a lot of kids, like for me, I think at the time when I started in biological anthropology, there was something like 3% of Black women were biological anthropologists in the United States. It was a, Mm -hmm. it's still a very exclusive group, but Mm -hmm. we're finding each other. We have a wonderful group of uh, people called the uh, Black and Bio Anthro Group. Incredible group Mm -hmm. of uh, women. It's international. It's not just the Mm -hmm. United States. So that also helps to feel less lonely in the field. But yeah. And again, that's again, like you stepping into communities that you feel safe in because they're like, you know, they're letting you be who you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Talk to me about, oh my gosh, there are so many things to cover. Firstly, like I echo all the celebration about all of that. That's really freaking cool. And I see it as, I don't know, like it, it, 
to, to me, it reads as like an expression of the unification of all the things that you've told us that you identify as. That's super freaking cool. There was one phrase, and this is stepping away from that just a tad. There's one phrase that you used there. I didn't know how to ask. And that, that reminded me of a couple different things throughout this conversation about like the things we don't know, we don't know yet. And the difficulty mm-hmm. that we might have in accessing you know, the good on the other side of that mm-hmm. invisible fence isn't even the right term because everything in that way is invisible. Like as we wrap up here, how do we deal with the reality that there is untold and unimaginable good out there somewhere, probably, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't know what we don't know, but there's good out there if we can find the words to access it. And, and earlier you said also like this job arrived, I must've been ready. What is readiness? What is like, what does it mean to discover or step into language that was previously unknown and 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 to access the doors that that opens up? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do with the fact that there's so much good in our lives that we don't even know about yet? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I've learned is to stay curious and stay open. And in order to do that, I think you have to sort of make an agreement with yourself to be vulnerable Hmm. um, because anything can come your way. But if I had to also recognize that if anything could come my way, it didn't necessarily mean that it needed to be negative. I just needed to be ready for it. Mm -hmm. And when I say Mm -hmm. ready for it, I don't think this is something that we can almost plan for or know that it's going to happen at all. For me, it was a very organic process. And I probably heard things happening all the time, but if I wasn't ready to take it in, like I wasn't Mm -hmm. listening, the buzzwords weren't clicking, they weren't Mm -hmm. sticking to my brain, I wasn't having the conversation in my heart, like that couldn't have happened until I was open to receive it. And so Mm -hmm. now I find myself actively and deliberately trying to be more open and Mm. aiming for, or not even aiming, but trying to allow myself to not be afraid of the positive because I'm afraid of the negative, Mm. right? Because in in both cases, anything can happen. So if anything can happen, I'm going to choose the positive option. (laughs) Snap, 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 snap. Yes, 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 yes. And so I think, I think that's what I mean by like being ready for it. And it also mm -hmm. means like getting comfortable with yourself. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you might hear, I think I told Abe last year, I got an awesome job offer. The one that I always wanted. I think Mm -hmm. I talked to both of you about it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but now's not the time. Hmm. And it wasn't forcing it, right? It yeah, wasn't yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah. I I think you were just like, no, let it be a sign that you're moving in the right direction. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, right? It's an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of my skills and everything yeah. that I've worked for. Yeah. But because it's n- the fact that I can say it's not the right time felt mm-hmm. very empowering to me because uh, it was about my situation yeah. and I felt like I had agency there. Yep. And so. Mm. I think that that's part of it is understand being comfortable with saying no, being comfortable with saying yes, and being ready to be open for the positive instead of trying to close yourself off because you fear the negative. Mm. Mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's fucking go. Mike. I mean, yes, I mean, <laughs> that this is the point of the podcast because, like, totally. And you are a living representation of this. It's, I mean, no other words other than that. I mean, let's Oy. fucking go. Um, totally. We need to wrap up. Here are our two last questions for you. Number one, what does an empowered Maisha look like and feel like? An empowered Maisha is confident, but not conceited. Mm. And 
is always looking for ways to learn. The learning mm. never stops. And mm. a, an empowered Maisha can be corrected. Mm. Ooh. I want to, I want to like literally get you on like so many more podcasts because oh, we can like talk for hours. I mean, this has gone by so fast. Oh my gosh. I love that. Okay. The last question, and thank you so much for your time and for sharing of yourself here. The last question is what do you know for sure? Nothing. That's mm. what I know for sure. What I know for sure is that I know nothing, which means mm. that I can continue to explore and stay curious and stay open until I die. <laughs> drop in 30 seconds. Fantastic. Maisha, thank you so much, so much for your time. I, oh, I value this conversation. Me. A ton. Absolutely. For our listeners, go check out Maisha online, Rockstar Anthro on uh right on Instagram, Rockstar yeah. Anthro. Her anthropology work, her work at the Clinton Foundation. She's a creative. You'll just be blown away by how awesome she is. Maisha, thank you so much. Keep on freaking rocking it. We are blessed to know you and onward and upward. Thank you. I love you both and stay safe and happy. <laughs> Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Y'all, the whole point of everything is to open up ourselves in all the fullness we are made for, and then to create, create, create with everything that is real and true and bright. That's the work of a life. That's what we're working on. And you're here because you feel that for yourself, too. And we believe in you completely. Thanks for joining us this round. And hey, for every conversation in this series, including this one, we've assembled a downloadable set of notes, table questions, a journal prompt, and some action steps that you can use to bring the energy and the lessons of this conversation home to your own life. Head to our podcast website, empoweredhumanacademy.com. Hey, thank you for being here. Now get out there and do something that feels exactly like you. We will do the same. And for us, that includes bringing you the next conversation. We cannot wait. Have an awesome, awesome day.